All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you might be wondering why I'm wearing this outlandish pirate t-shirt. And the answer to that question lies in my guest today. He calls himself a corporate governance pirate. So I figured I'd kind of honor that uh, pirate tradition with a pirate shirt, despite my wife's objection. So uh, today's guest, Mike from Non-Gap. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I appreciate the theme. I think the, the shirt looks great on you, actually. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm going to let you tell everyone about Non-Gap in a second. But before you do that, you know, let me just kind of plug you a bit. I, I mentioned this on, on my blog, but Non-Gap is, uh, you know, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, hey, you can only subscribe to like kind of one investing newsletter or anything. What would you subscribe to? Non-GAAP would be my choice. Uh, and I don't say that lightly because I write a sub stack and I would recommend your sub stack over mine. Uh, you know, it's just a great blend of the corner of corporate governance and investing. I come away from every uh, edition uh, with learning something new. So, you know, I don't say this lightly, but I, I really enjoy the product. I'm so glad to have you on and I'll, I'll let you kind of go into your background and describe Non-GAAP a little bit. Yeah, and you know, go ahead and send the invoice for for that uh, plug. Really appreciate that. Um, you know, NonGap. I guess uh, it's interesting. I, I actually initially started NonGap as kind of a social experiment. Um, you know, I've, I've been on Twitter for a few years and you know, interacted with a lot of folks, and um, you know, a lot of them just kind of encouraged me to you know, you should write more. And I was like, all right, well, I, I guess you know the. I think earlier this year, everyone and their mom started a Substack, and and they uh, you know, decided to launch a newsletter. So I, I joined the the crowd there and, and decided, you know what, I'll I'll start sending out uh, different thought pieces that kind of just float in my mind uh, for mm -hmm. the most part, and uh, you know see see if it got any traction. And so, you know, the the first piece I wrote was actually about Hasbro and Entertainment One, and I, I know we share a an affinity for, you know, content IP. Yep. And I thought that was just a nice kind of starting point as far as, um, you know, I think most people kind of understand what the merger was about, but what was really interesting is when you read the background on, on, on the deal, you, you kind of realize that, oh, hey, they started these conversations around the same time that insiders, specifically directors, suddenly started buying stock, you know, after the stock tanked. And, and I thought, okay, this is a good example of, trying to blend um, corporate governance, board behavior, insider transactions as a, as a signaling, as a way to signal, uh, you know, potentially uh, material moves or changes or, or pieces of information. It's, it's never uh, exact, right? It, it, it's, uh, it should, at the end of the day, hopefully apply to your general mosaic. You still have to apply an investor perspective, but that was, you know, that was kind of a great start to you know, talk about this stuff. And, you know, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway or, or a surprise for me was people actually started responding, reading. They actually thought it was interesting. And I didn't expect that to uh, be the case. I thought, you know, I mean, governance was pretty boring, right? Like no, no one really wants to read a proxy aside from maybe me um, now, but, um, you know, back then it wasn't really a thing, but I thought it was a great way to, to share my experiences and, and how I looked at, at the world just based on kind of, you know, I guess in a past life, I used to do activist investing at relational investors for close to eight years. And, and this was kind of where rubber meets road, right? Like, I mean, imagine, you know, most investors, you have a thesis, you have an idea of how the business should go. And, and the you know, value outcomes, uh, you know, activism is, is a similar approach, except 
you're, you're also advocating for, for a certain thesis. And if you're going to advocate for certain theses, you have to think about, well, how do you make sure you're aligned with management? How do you keep them motivated? How do you, you know, it, it's one thing to tell a company to, you know, cut costs or, you know, reinvest in certain parts of the business or you know, spin off or break up, you know, all, all the different activist levers. It's, it's a completely different game to try to, come, you know, structure a plan and a governance um, uh, framework that, that actually causes your thesis to cascade down through the organization, right? So that y- you learn kind of little tips and tricks over the years. And, and really, after I left, there wasn't a place to share those experiences or pattern recognitions. And, um, you know, Substack has been a, a pretty you know, interesting experience as far as being able to share those stories. And um, so far, I mean, I think we're, what, six, six months in or so? For you, yep. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been well received. I think, you know, I'm just happy that it's starting a conversation about what is best practices, what is the best way to, uh, you know, uh, advocate for shareholders, but also address stakeholders. I mean, ESG is such a hot space in general. And I think everyone is trying to raise capital. And Mm -hmm. I think my point is, you don't, if you want to make a difference in this space, you don't even necessarily have to have an ESG fund or, or you know, do anything in that. I mean, it's you'll be well compensated, which is why they they pursue ESG funds. But you know, I want to, and and this is a lesson I learned at Relational is you know, don't underestimate the power of a single voice in the room. You know, advocating because often, more often than not, you're actually saying things that a lot of people agree with or believe in, but they're you know for one reason or the or the other, they can't. Um, for for very good reasons they can't talk about those things right warren buffett has said like look if you're if you're a director in the boardroom like yeah i think it was with uh coke had some egregious uh comp comp plans and he voted for them mm-hmm. like how could you vote for him and i i believe he went and kind of tweaked them behind the scenes but he said look if you're a director in the boardroom often you can't be the one who kind of burps in the boardroom because you will get kicked out of that board and you'll get kicked out of a bunch of others and i, I do think that's one of the reasons like an activist and, and you know this having worked for an activist one, often like a vanguard will go to an activist and, and they'll present all the research and say like, hey, here's all the here's all the issues we have, but we can't be the one who burps, right? Because we're invested in 5,000 companies and we'll get this invited. We need you to take a stake and go burp for us. Uh, do, you, do you think that's about right? Or would you add to anything to that? That's a, that's a great burp. Um, I would say that's absolutely uh, true. Um, I think a recurring theme in governance and boards and, and you know, directors working with each other and, and relationship building, there are trade-offs, right? Like I, I try to emphasize that when, when I write about this stuff, it's not obviously good, not obviously bad. There's a lot of gray area. There's trade-offs. There are people that want to do good things. And, and that's, so one thing that's really underappreciated um, by a lot of folks is how can one person, you know, in a boardroom or one person, you know, voicing their concerns change so much stuff. And, and the answer is no one else can burp, yep. but they want to. And so now you become kind of the vessel for change, so to speak. And, and, and you're able to build a quiet, you know, silent you know, majority or coalition that will, you know, privately advocate for you, but they'll, you know, they might not necessarily acknowledge what you're doing or maybe, you know, in certain ways, they'll let you know, like, hey, keep going. This is this is the right thing to do. Uh, but for, yeah, for personal reasons, professional reasons, they, they don't do that stuff. So when you show up, like, it feels like you're you're on a lonely journey, right? But 
you know, you're, you're actually, you actually have a lot more support to get stuff done than, than you realize within the boardroom. I think there, I forgot who did the survey. Is it Price Waterhouse Cooper? You know, they do this annual director survey and it's anonymous and, and they ask directors all these questions. And, and, and I've seen this to be kind of true, like anecdotally, they'll ask like, do you think, you know, one of your directors should be replaced? And, you know, half of them actually vote yes, anonymously. And I think up to a third actually say two of them should get replaced. Yep. So this is, this is the dynamic, like, just assume this is the dynamic you're showing up to in a lot of these places where there's already fiefdoms and friction and, um, you know, competing interest on these boards. And it makes it, you know, I think I've, I've talked about this before. It's like a soap opera when, when you start, you know, thinking of it from that context. And it's really trying to bubble up. What, what is the story within the story and the relationships and, and how does that actually impact the organization? Because what happens in the board, you know, flows through everything else. Yeah, as an outsider, you tend to think of these boards and these companies as purely rational, rational institutions for the most part, right? Like the directors are going to oversee the management team perfectly. The management team is going to maximize shareholder value. And the fact is like, these are humans and they've got a lot of external incentives. Like, uh, I was at McKinsey for a long time and I remember once uh, a CFO hired us for something. I was doing all this work and I was like, I don't get what we're doing. And eventually one of the directors pulled me in and he was like, look, the CFO has a son in college and all the CFO wants is for his son to work for McKinsey when he gets out of college. So he, this is a project where he's just trying to get to know a bunch of people at McKinsey so he can like have a warm intro when his son throws his, puts an application in, right? And a McKinsey project's not a cheap project, but you know, this was the CFO he had money, he had influence, he was doing something for his personal incentives and with the board, you know, all sorts of victims. But, uh, you know, if I had to boil non-GAAP down to one sentence, I think there's lots of things, but I think my major thing when I think of it is you look at the corporate dark arts, as you call them, and you find little tweaks to incentive structures that indicate a stock might be about to move, a company might be undervalued, something along those lines. So you can, can you kind of explain the corporate dark art, the corporate governance, dark arts, what goes into them, what you look for, what types of signals you look for? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, listen, I've, I've thought a lot about like, what are the dark arts? What is that all about? How did I figure it out? And I mean, the honest answer is I didn't really start calling it the dark arts until I started the newsletter, right? And actually had to have a, like, a, it was a for it was a forcing function, right? I actually had to like put it within a understood framework of what's, you know, like most investors, what's floating in your head, right? It's like, um, it's like trying to ask someone, you know, when was the first time you really figured out like, you know, investing in cheap companies was the way to go, right? It's, it's kind of like, well, I can't really remember it. But now that you've mentioned it, here's kind of how I think about it, right? And frame it. Investing in cheap companies is the way to go, by the way, the past (laughs) couple of years might prove that wrong. Well, you know, us, us contrarians, we're going to say cheap. Oh, I, I, well, I should mention, I started my career as a big Seth Klarman stan, you know, uh, also Joel Greenblatt stan. So very event-driven, deep value. I actually started my buy side career um, in small, micro, small cap, deep value. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, which, you know, today is kind of at the heart of like, none of this works. I don't know why any of it doesn't work. But back then it really worked. And, and yeah. I always joke that, even though as a category, I'm probably more of a traditional GARP investor, you know, deep down, I, I've seen myself as a deep intrinsic value investor. It's just the way I value, intri- you know, the intrinsic values a little bit differently today. But, you know, everyone's a value investor in, in my mind. No, no one's going, I'm going to buy an overvalued stock, right? Like, like I'm not going to begrudge someone 
who has a different view on intrinsic value than, than I do. We may disagree, we may have differences, but you know, I, that's, I'm never really a fan of the us versus them dynamic, but the, I'm, I'm uh, sidetracking there. But going back to you know, the dark arts and how I figured out that signaling, you know, I spent most of my career doing, you know, I, well, it's not, I don't know what's the opposite of the dark or the good arts. I don't know. I'm implementing best practices, right? When you do, when you do friendly activism, the goal is to be behind the scenes. You don't want to start like public fights. What people don't realize is like for most activists, if they end up on the board, that's usually a, a measure of failure. And, and what I mean is if you, if you can't get the management team and the board to work with you privately without getting on the board, um, it, it's kind of a letdown. I mean, I, like you end up getting locked up, you're restricted. Yes, you have inside access to, to you know, company plans and, and information, but the goal is really to try to you know, show them the framework without having to be in there. Um, but, the, goal but is, since, the goal is you have a nuclear weapon, right? But you don't want right. to use the nuclear weapon and you get don't, off the board. No. You want to show it. And they say, okay, yeah, don't use it, please. We agree. Right. Yeah. It's Dayton, right? Or uh, I think the way, the way Ralph, Whit so the founder of the firm, Ralph Whitworth, he, he describes it as, and, and I'm paraphrasing, this isn't exactly what you said, but you know, friendly activism is about getting people to work with you. And, and 99.9% of the time they will, but there's going to be that one moment when someone challenges you or call or tries to call your bluff and, and you got to go all in and just, you know, make an example. I described it as at some point, someone's going to dare you to rain hellfire. And when they do, you have to rain it. And when the ashes, you know, are, are come, come floating back down, pack up the ashes and ship it away because you need an example for the next scenarios, just yep. as a reminder is like, Hey, we're reasonable. But if you want to, if you want to go down this path, you know, and go nuclear, we, we are more than welcome to do it. Um, so, you know, activism and, and good governance that's where i initially learned this stuff right like what are what are the levers to actually drive good um behavior which drives good performance and, and stock uh performance from there i mean i didn't really think of it as a dark art or, or really considered like the negative ramifications of it until maybe like i want to say a decade ago and it like michelle letter at footnoted um great great person uh, fellow footnote reader uh, she wrote an article uh, talking about uh, going back to content IP, uh, uh, Marvel, right? Like the comic book uh, uh, company when, when they were public. She, and she wrote about the story of, of the CEO, their contract was up. And uh, around the same time, they were having conversations with Disney about doing an acquisition or selling themselves. He reloaded himself with options. And that was kind of the first exposure of like, oh, this is, this is kind of like what I do, but like the complete opposite. And like, like kind of a, uh, you know, really bad practice, but they made a lot of money doing it. And it was kind of like, that was kind of the, the seedling, that and a few other situations. I think, you know, I talk about TPG all the time, so I'm going to try to not talk about TPG on this podcast. But those sort of scenarios... Yeah, the next question about private equity, so... <laughs> or we can talk about. But that's when I started learning that, hey, there are ways where, um, you know, we try to implement plans to encourage good behavior and shareholder mm -hmm. alignment. There are you know, a mirrored, you know, I call it a dark art now, but back then I was like, there are mirrored behaviors that uh, actually shows disalignment and, and shows that, you know, insiders can enrich themselves using the same mechanisms uh, with, with the big, with the big caveat being they're doing it in plain sight. 
So if you pay attention and you notice certain patterns, um, you'll, you'll be able to, uh, you know, I say profit alongside. Now it's, it's not, you know, 100%. And, you know, it's sometimes it feels like hindsight analysis, but, you know, if you figure out someone, and, and this probably segues into your private equity question, if you figure out a person or individual or, or holder um, is practicing the dark arts, you might not catch him the first time, but then you know, okay, this is a guy that he, they're on the list officially. He's someone to pay attention to. Yep. And someday down the road, it might be next year, it might be two years, it might be 10 years, they're going to do something that um, basically screams they're doing it again and you should be ready and, and trade on it. Um, and, and, and you'll have high confidence that it'll probably work out for you. And that's a great say because we've been, we've been talking about the dark arts, but I don't think we've given an, a specific example. So mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be a specific company, but can you just give an example of what a company would do for this dark arts so that insiders can profit from a stock that's about to move? So I think that, you know, the most popular, or at least the one that, you know, I talk about a lot is a concept called spring loading. Mm-hmm. And what spring loading entails is, uh, you know, imagine you're on the board and, uh, you know, your, your annual um, you know, numbers are in and, and the year's done and, and you're reviewing it and, and everything looks great, right? Um, you're beating analyst expectations. Not only are you beating analyst expectations during the board meeting, as you discuss forward-looking guidance and what you're going to set for next year's expectations, you actually are going to guide you know, some blowout number because you know, trends are going in the right direction. Um, and really, it's, it's next to impossible not to guide something spectacular, right? So when you think about that, like people are in a really good mood. Um, the dark arts and spring-loading would then say, hey, this management team did such a great job. Is there a way to actually reward, you know, a job well done. And one thing they can do is actually try to, you know, grant equity or options or some instrument um, at, you know, stock prices that haven't necessarily priced in all this good news. And so what you do is you give them options before, you know, earnings. And, and when earnings come, you announce, you beat expectations and you increase guidance and the stock just, you know, sometimes the you know, stock will move 20, 30, if not more, uh, 20, 30% or more. Um, and that's one way to kind of reward the team uh, for a job well done. And this kind of goes back to this like gray area of like, is that the right thing to do? Like, should you be doing that? What's the best practice? So that would be like a very obvious form of dark arts is we know good news is coming in. So we're going to give you equity before we announce it. And oh, by the way, yeah, this would be totally illegal for you to buy these shares and the SEC would come cracking down. But because the compensation committee uh, and our advisors are signing off on it and approving it through these mechanisms. There's a lot more gray area and um, wiggle room to legally get it done. Yep. And and you pull it off. So let me let me just uh, so one that's been popular and I think you made it public. So I, I feel mm-hmm. okay mentioning this Kodak, right? So Kodak, right. Uh, you know, very rough numbers. Their stock was lingering at a dollar. They announced they uh, they had announced they were about to strike a deal with the U.S. government for a huge loan to pivot into pharmaceutical manufacturing, right? Right. There was absolutely no doubt, you know, it was a 750 million basically non-reverse loan. I mean, this was great for the company. Mm -hmm. And the company gave their CEO, I'm just gonna use rough numbers. They gave their CEO a bunch of options struck at $3 per share, right? So you would only do the stocks at one, you'd only do three if you knew the stock was gonna explode. They did it, the next day everything leaks, the stock goes to 10, right? The CEO makes $30 million or so, right? Now, I think one thing way to look at it is 
hey, this CEO and the board just kind of stole $30 million from the from shareholders, right? They enriched the they enriched the CEO for $30 million. Another way to look at it is, hey, the CEO, you know, he made this incredible deal that is going to create a billion dollars for shareholders. Shouldn't he get a piece? And like I think back to Steve Jobs coming back to Apple, right? He came back to Apple. I think he worked for nothing for eight years. He turned Apple into this, it was on the verge of being Goliath, and the board eventually had to say, hey, we need to reward Steve. And I, I think the board actually got in trouble because they gave him some backdated options or something. But, you know, is it really that they're stealing from the teams or is it actually that they're rewarding like tons of value that they've created that they wouldn't have captured otherwise, but they've actually done a spectacular job? Or do you kind of just look at it as, hey, I'm just here to make money and trade on it when they signal this is happening? Well, it's never about the money for me. Um I, that sounds cliche. Let me rephrase that. Uh, I love puzzles. Yeah. Right? I love, I love understanding people like before I got into investing, you know, I, I wanted to get into diplomacy and you know, be, be a Jack Ryan and, and do psychological profiles and, and do all that cool, you know, Tom Clancy stuff. Um, so like, that's always been something that like I naturally gravitate towards, like trying to understand people and, and how they tick and how their decisions get expressed in, in organizations, right? Because you're right, like, it's very easy to get um, sidetracked and and forget that these are, at the end of the day, these are people making decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And pulling levers. And so when you talk about, you know, is it an injustice? Is it fair or unfair? I, this goes back to the whole notion of trade-offs, right? Um, I think clearly, I mean, if, if you're following the news, like, you know, the politicians, um, the media do not like what happened here. Um, and, and, and there was a, you know, there's a very good argument for that and, and understood on the other hand, to your point, I mean, how did, how did Kodak pull that off? I mean, think about it when that news came out, I was like, wait, what, what are they doing? Like pharmaceutical loans? Like, you know, do you, do you reward these guys? Because like they actually pulled off something just so like out there. So like they had to leverage their relationships and hustle and, you know, talk to, you know, people in the administration to, to even get in front, like, what was it that, uh, should they get reward for that? I mean, I think a lot, you know, there, there are a cohort of people that say, yeah, I mean, they should be able to share in some of those gains. Um, yep. I, I would say if you want to reward them, there are probably other ways of doing it in a way that's, uh, more aligned. That's, um, you know, they'll get paid, but it's kind of, you know, above board, but you know, that's, that's very, that's nuanced. That's hard. You have to think through it. Whereas like these guys clearly demonstrated that they kind of, they got very excited and couldn't help themselves. Right. Like they, 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 they landed on pocket aces and they couldn't help, but go all in and like, just notify the rest of the table that, okay, this guy, this guy is, uh, you know, doing something here. Like he, he, he's not bluffing. I, I know that for sure. Right. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, it, it, it's hard to say, but I will say for Kodak, like, even if you think they deserve to get rewarded, like you are, you are being a knucklehead. I, I, and I rarely use knucklehead. Um, strong language for the podcast, strong, strong language for the podcast. You're being a knucklehead granting out of the money options one day before you're announcing a deal. Yep. Like you're just, you're just asking for trouble. Um, I mean, the more nuanced thing that they did was the directors double dip that same year. Like, so they normally get grants in January for the directors, the board of directors. May, when they started these conversations with the government, suddenly they, they grant themselves um, out-of-the-money options again. I mean, they, they did restricted stock in January, and suddenly they, 
they switch um, to to options. And and like here here's a less here's a free like tip. Whenever you follow a company like a Kodak or like I call them tire fires. They're just like they're there. Like you don't know what they're going to do to get out of it. If 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 you're following a situation that's a complete tire fire and out of the blue they they start changing compensation or they get they start signaling something very bullish, like that's the time to pay attention, right? Because they're thinking the same thing that you're thinking. Like this is this is a dire situation. Like this isn't a good place. So for them to suddenly get really bullish, give them a ton of you know options or do something that like, hey, this is out of character of a company that you know is you know a tire fire <laughs> for for less of a better description like okay th- there's something going on there so that's 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 a free advice that's kind of how kodak played out right like when when the directors suddenly double dip give themselves options out of the blue in may you should be paying attention like yep. why would you suddenly give yourself options and then and then you know they're able to hide the other grants until after the news is announced uh, for the insiders but that's kind of how you try to you know capture what's going on and like yeah you can make a risk adjusted bet to capitalize on on those kind of trades um but yeah going back to that whole debate like it's it's hard to say that's why i'm always like it depends right and kodak i i don't want to put too much morality on it but i believe the ceo sold a bunch of the options after the pop which i think adds another element of hey there might be something sketchy here and Anyone who's profiting from COVID hysteria, I, I not hysteria, COVID is very, very, but anyone who's doing anything to profit from COVID, I also think there's a, a little moral, but neither here nor there. Um, a major trend of your work has been private equity controlled companies practicing the corporate dark arts. And, you know, as an investor, I was actually surprised because I always thought it was a little contrarian where I was like, hey, the private equity company owns 60% of a public company. I actually feel a little bit better investing alongside them because, you know, they, they ultimately, like private equity is focused on one thing, and that's IRR and making money for their shareholders. So if I'm buying into this company, ultimately, they're probably going to do what's right uh, in terms of capital allocation and getting the share price as high as possible. And I, I'm not sure if your work uh, neglects that, but a lot of your work has surprised me in terms of private equity firms being able to, trying to enrich management teams. So could you dive into like why private equity goes through this and kind of why you picked up on private equity uh practicing dark arts because i think you've described several of the firms as masters i think so private equity one thing you'll notice about private equity versus a public equity investor is they are very insistent on having um strong board representation Mm -hmm. right like you you talk to public investors they don't really talk about governance um in general private equity like that's one of the top priorities is like we're going on the board not only are we going on the board we're going to go on to your comp committee not only are we going to go on the comp committee, I'm actually going to be chairman of the comp committee, right? Like they know to drive um, behaviors and, and align incentives. They want to be control in control of the purse strings. Mm-hmm. And so they, they take a much more proactive, I mean, you could say cutthroat approach to governance versus like a lot of, you know, activist funds or, or public, you know, investors. And, and there's a reason for that, right? Like, most of these businesses that they acquire, like there's a lot of leverage. You can't mess around here. Um, you got to be totally focused and, and execute and operate on the business. And there are only so many um, executives and management teams that these funds are comfortable, you know, manning that sort of organization, right? Cause there's a lot of risk. Yep. And, and what happens is they, they know like 
speaking of unicorns, you know, private equity executives, like those are, those are the unicorns of the PE industry. So you want to keep those guys as happy as possible because if they are proven that they can make you a lot of money, you take a company private, they do their thing, you go public and you make a ton of money. Like you want them to be happy so that they will do your next deal. Right. And so by the time a PE firm uh, takes a business, you know, clean, you know, well, I, I'm not going to say clean it up. Do they do their PE thing as a private company and then they go public and make a ton of money. Their, their equity is pretty much deep in the money, right? This is now the opportunity to reward the management team with, you know, large grants um, and, and different kind of levers as a way to kind of remind them like, Hey, thanks so much for like, yeah, like pulling us off, taking it public, making us a ton of money. We're, you know, we're going to reward you. And what's going to happen is when the next deal comes along, that team will want to work with you know, the PE firm again. Or yeah. um, if, if they try to recruit other, you know, going back to the burp concept, they go, you know, they try to recruit another management team. They're going to go talk to the port- other portfolio companies. What was, what was it like to work with this fund with this, you know, partner? Was he like, what did he take care of you? Like, was he a good guy to work with? And so there, there's certain things where it's like, you know, they will implement the dark arts because they're already in the money. So this is another kind of uh, lesson I picked up over the years. When an investor is deep in the money, whether it's PE or venture capital, or even a public investor that you know, has a 10 bagger in the portfolio, mm-hmm. you're going to be a lot more tolerant of certain behaviors that the management team does. Um, to the point where it's detrimental, but you just kind of look the other way. Like, and I think there's a certain human nature about it where this guy made me so, so much money or this woman made me so much money that um, I'm going to tolerate, you know, I mean, you know, VCs talk about being founder friendly, which is their way of saying like, you get to do whatever you want as long as you make us rich. Yep. Uh, private equity has a similar dynamic, right? With their, with their management team. So when they do spring loading, when they, randomly give options on the same day as the IPO so that they can participate in the IPO pop. These are ways to basically um, reward these teams that, that, you know, they got well compensated as a private company, but this is really their way of juicing, you know, their, their personal ROI of these management teams. Cause you know, they've proven that you can make PE money. We're going to make sure you're happy so that we can work on the next deal together. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when, when you study a lot of like PE firms, like that, whether it's J crew or, you know, some other you know, entity, w- when they can get a proven winner in there, they're going to, they're going to try to like, you know, work with them as often as possible. No, that, that's great. You know, I, I guess the two things there, like I've been reading e-boys recently and the, mm-hmm. the thing you say with private equity, trying to make those teams happy, whether it's for their next company or so that they refer the next management teams to them reminds me so much of the VC model, as you said, where, Hey, we make these guys happy. They're a proven founder. They'll have us be the anchor for their next fund. Or when their best friend launches a startup, they're going to refer them to us. And you know, with J. Crew, I, I think I, that obviously did it not end up working well in the end game. But you know, it was a, it was TPG who bought J. Crew with Mickey, right? That was it- yeah. I mean, they double dipped, right? They they did two deals. They literally like went. You know, they 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 acquired J. Crew, brought in Mickey Drexler. You know, was a huge success. Took it yeah. public. I mean, he was a rock star. And then you know, they they. They used, you know, certain um, compensation, I guess, uh, levers like spring loading to keep him happy, and also, you know, to privately like show him, hey, like w- whenever you're ready to sell J Crew again, like think of us, and exactly. you know, low key, low key, you know, use the compensation 
uh, as a way to kind of win him over, right? And and made it tough to to run a fair process. Exactly, because then when they were ready to sell, Mickey was the key man there, and Mickey told mm-hmm. everyone else, "I will only go work for these guys." So those guys, when you're the only buyer, you can get a good price. Everyone else might have been saying this business is worth a billion to us, and it didn't matter. Mickey was key, and he wanted to sell it to you, so you could buy it for five hundred million. So, uh, yeah, that, just super interesting. Uh, yeah, just real quickly, one of the signals I've never seen in your writing, and not that you mm-hmm. for the signal, but you know, insider purchases, buying on the open market has never been a signal in any of the writing. And part of that is the dark arts is learning how to reward management teams often when you have MNPI that uh, they can't buy on the open market with, right? But do you just uh, find insider purchases are too noisy uh, or is there something else going on there? I mean, I, I don't talk about insider buying too much, mostly because it's kind of a well-understood signal um, to the point where it is kind of a soft or weak signal yep. a lot of times. Now, granted, there are scenarios where, like, I didn't mention it in the Kodak write-up, but Kodak insiders were extremely aggressive buying stock, right? Purchasing shares even before the news and even before they were aware of the news. So clearly, like, there was something going on that got them very excited about whatever they're working on to buy shares. So thematically or directionally, um, I will use insider purchasing. Uh, as far as like writing about it, it's not necessarily a strong signal. And it's one of those things where by the time I start looking at it, I mean, there's probably already three or four different articles on Seeking Alpha talking about the insider buying. Mm-hmm. There's nothing There's nothing new I'm going to like tell you about this particular part of of what's going on here. And, and there's already like, you know, a, there's literally a bunch of subscription programs, right? Just to flag insider buying. So it, it's, it's a crowded kind of category. So I don't talk about it. I think it's worthwhile. That said, the reason I, I don't spend too much time on it relative to the grants is the reality is the way like the rules are set up. You can make more money working with the board and, and, um, the compensation committee restructuring, readjusting your grants than being, you know, trembling with greed, buying stock yep. in the open market. Like if, if, if I were talking to a CEO, right. And, and he thought that, um, you know, there's something exciting going on and like, he wants to really maximize his, his uh, economic upside. I mean, one thing would be, yeah, you can buy back stock. I mean, that would be one way of doing or buying buying stock for yourself, open market purchases. But the reality is, you can probably get multiples of that. You know, working with the comp committee to, let's say, uh, overweight options that are out of the money strike prices yep. as a way to make more money than just you know, it's one thing to spend a hundred thousand dollars on um, you know open market purchase. It's a whole other ball game when you're you know dealing with millions of dollars with the target grants. That said, now I'm just shooting off the hip. I, I, I apply less signal to insider buying uh, from executives, but I put a lot more weight on insider buying from directors. And the reason I do that is directors aren't as, um, they have access to, in, uh, to kind of the material information and, and where the business is going, but they're not necessarily experts, right? So when you get a director committing, let's say a hundred thousand dollars to buy, you know, shares in the company, like that's usually a big deal because that's not common practice, right? Like you kind of like think, think critically, like what, what, what compels a director to buy back stock when it's not a normal thing to do? Yep. 
Like either, either there's an opportunity here that's so good that they can't help themselves or more often than not what happened. And, and this is where you see clusters. If you see a cluster of directors buying stock, that's, that's them talking to each other and going like, there's a really good opportunity here. I bought that, you know, I bought a hundred thousand shares. And then, you know, they talk like you bought a hundred, you know, I'm going to buy 50,000. You can actually see that thinking get expressed in the form four filings where it's like, you see one savvy director that you, know, you suspect has good, um, you know, a good view on valuation, buying a lot of stock. Then you see kind of the um, other directors that might not be financial experts, but they're, you know, they're marketing or like valuation isn't their thing, but suddenly they start buying shortly after that other director. And that's a signal. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about that for sure. The only other thing I'd add there is, you know, if the CEO is buying, the CEO often, you know, you have, I am the man syndrome, right? Like, hey, mm-hmm. I, I, I am personally going to make this company a success. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, who knows. But the director can be a little bit more objective, right? So maybe they sit on multiple boards and when they're putting money to this, they're, they're saying, hey, you know, I, I've got a lot of context and this is the company that I think is most undervalued. And they, they really don't have much of a dog in, in the fight, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think it's um, it's that objectivity that helps because you're right. Like probably the most bullish person in any company is a CEO and they might be irrationally bullish when they're buying back stock um, to to the detriment of using it as a signal. Yep. And 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 that's, you know, I I think we've all experienced that feeling of going, oh my goodness, the CEO bought a lot of stock. I'm I'm gonna ride that that narrative and just getting your face ripped off. Yep. Um, whereas yeah, directors are much more cautious. And you know, a director a director spending fifty to a hundred thousand dollars on, you know, a company that they're not running or in control of. I mean, they're a director. I don't know. There's just a bigger like mental hurdle that you have to get over versus a CEO that's, you know, they're already getting millions of dollars in equity grants on top of it. Um, You know, that 50,000 might not be that big of a signal on the buy, but if they randomly started shifting their, their equity compensation structure and made it very aggressive, that that's interesting to me. And that's a much stronger signal. Now we, you talked about sometimes, you know, Kodak, a couple of other examples come to mind. You called it the tire fire. They make a, they make a change and that can be a screen by, and you know, Kodak, who wouldn't like it went from one to, I think it peaked at like 40, 50, something like that. Like anyone would like to be a, a, any part of that. But you know, a, a lot of these you found, and I, I've texted you about this. I look at it and I'm like, it's too much of a tire fire for me. Like I, I, I just can't get comfortable. So when you see these tire fires with strong signals, like how do you think about it? Is hey, I just need to put a small position on just because the signals are so strong here. I need to do more fundamental work. See what I'm missing. I, you know, if I can't get comfortable with just too much of a tire fire, it probably just pass. Like how do you think about that? I mean, a genuine tire fires like a Kodak. I, I mean, that's not a real, that's not a real investment decision for me. I mean, that's your, your, uh, you know, I call it buy side bets, right? Not wall street bets. You're, you're playing around with your PA, you're putting on small positions. Maybe you do a YOLO, you know, out of the money option. Uh, you know, it's not much different for, to me as, uh, as like going to Vegas, right? Like uh, the, you budget a certain amount that you're willing to lose and like, okay, uh, you know, this isn't a portfolio decision. This is a, a trading decision. Now there, there are tiers to the tire fire, right? Different tiers. So I've, I think I've been on record at, at calling Snapchat a tire fire. And, and what's funny is like, there's certain tire fires where it's like, I think I should have just gone long when, when I called it a tire fire. Cause I think my returns are 
would have been much better. In that case, they're not really tire fires. It's just a, 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 a tongue-in-cheek comment. But like, when I find a scenario where like the fundamentals or the financials look bad, and suddenly um, insiders are given like let's say uh, makeup grants or you know a Snapchat has like I've I've never written about Snapchat, but there there are some like grants that like caught my attention there that actually said like okay there are a lot of bad things going on here mm-hmm. but there's a sell-off that sell-off causes a lot of focus with management teams it causes them to go to first principles really recognize like what are we trying to accomplish and like you'll see it right like that's when you get infamous you know letters to the insiders like hey you know we made a mistake like we're retrenching like snapchat did the same thing so after a sell-off, if, if, if you suddenly see insiders like readjusting your game makeup grants and there's something fundamentally good about the business. So in Snapchat's case, I always joked, no one gives this business or gives, well, yeah, gives the business side any credit, but this thing's consistently the number one or two downloaded, you know, app in the app store you know, during certain periods of time. Like young people, you know, this is, this is their preferred method of communication. Messaging is important. Um, and, uh, so, you know, there was a big brouhaha about like Instagram stealing stories from Snapchat, right? And it's going to kill Snapchat. They, they stole this concept. It's over. And I, I actually took a, uh, an opposite take where I was like, Snapchat is really lucky right now because their cohorts aren't going to just move over to Instagram and suddenly stop using Snapchat. They now have quite possibly, uh, quite, po- well, actually, I, I don't think it's an argument. This is the best when it comes to social media, like social networks, um, network, network effects businesses, this is one of the best business machines on the planet, probably in the history of business, right? What Zuck built for, you know, monetizing the platform, um, is extraordinary. They are now, Snapchat is now blessed with Facebook copying stories. And now you get Facebook's machinery thinking 24 seven, how do we monetize stories? How do we monetize this emergent form factor that users love drives engagement? Mm-hmm. And how are we going to educate the advertisers to use this form factor? Cause before, before this, if you're Snapchat, you're a small entity, you're, you're kind of a niche concept. How do you convince the big advertisers to advertise, you know, Snapchat stories? How do you get them enthusiastic? Like what is this form factor? Half the people don't even know what Snapchat is. Hey, Facebook is way- now, the people Go who ahead. know it, they're 15 to 18. They're not the people who are buying the advertising. Right, exactly. But now you have Facebook figuring out what is the best product-first monetization model for this you know, stories form factor. And they're going to go out of their way and educate all the advertisers on why this is important. And fast forward you know, a couple of years, um, Snapchat stories and Snapchat advertising probably has some of the best CPMs for advertisers that know what they're doing. Right. Like it's it, it actually harkens back to when I was looking at Google years and years ago where, you know, people thought Google was expensive. But when you looked at it from an advertiser's perspective, like AdWords, like the ROIs of deploying those dollars into you know, Google was superior to any other form factor. And it's like, I don't care what the valuation is, as long as cons- your, their customers, the advertisers are, are getting, you know, 5x their return on 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 their spend they're going to keep spending it relative to other options and you're kind of slowly seeing that you know play out in, in snapchat right like people are starting to figure out how to use stories and advertise and use more uh, native you know 
models to get people to convert and it, you know, it's starting to work. People finally are figuring it out. So going back to your tire fire comment in general, it's not a, you know, it's a gamble, but in the scenarios where the business side is a tire fire, but the core business or, or what really makes that business special, whether it's the network effect or, or the users or something else, if that's still intact and still special, then you can actually start putting on conviction positions. And, and that reset in compensation is kind of a signal that not only are we going to try to make whole our team, but we're in an environment as a company that we're going to focus. And it kind of goes back to the notion of busted IPOs are a lot like spinoffs, right? Like when it's busted, suddenly like everyone that was previously there is gone. They want to get out. It makes you you know, focus on first principles, you, you try to do realignment. It's, I mean, you know, all the things you're looking for in a spinoff that are kind of arbed out these days, like you can find in busted IPOs or, or busted company situations today. And I'm sure they'll get arbed out. But in the meantime, it's, it's a decent place to fish for ideas. Yep. Yep. No, look, I, I think that's uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, when I think of your work over the past, you launched a newsletter in February. Most mm-hmm. of the situations, I think, have focused on either kind of the biotech slash pharma side or software slash technology side, I would say. And I have to wonder, is this because uh, that's where you spend most of your time? Or is this because these companies were particularly unique beneficiaries of COVID? So kind of in the March, April timeframe, board started looking and saying, oh, my God, our business is going off the charts. Like, we need to reward these executives. Or is this just because, you know, uh, uh, the upside for a biotech pharma company hitting it right is so much higher than the upside for a retailer hitting it right? So mm-hmm. you know, why, why do you think these areas have been kind of such a focus for you? I mean, I, I would say it's a few things. So you know, my background was more in tech before this. And like, you know, if, if, you, if you've read enough of my stuff or you're following me on Twitter, um, I, I kind of parrot myself when it comes to governance where like, don't just mechanically blindly follow this stuff, like have an investor perspective. It's no, it's not much different than trying to, you know, than, than all the other pieces of due diligence you're trying to um, uh, pursue or, or investigate or research to, to get a view on the company. Um, so always kind of have that perspective, even when you're looking at governance, like that's where you get the most signal. And so, I generally am biased towards situations where it's technology or, you know, network effects or networked assets, because I think those generally have, um, there's some of the hardest things to value. So I, I generally gravitate towards things where I think have a lot of value potential if, if certain things um, are there or if the stars align, but mm-hmm. if they don't, like they get deeply undervalued. Like, so content IP, I think we mutually have a, yep. a love for It's some of the most, difficult assets to value right it depends on like monetization platforms like can you make a movie there's a gaming opportunity like cards like there's there's a lot of like reasons that cause uh, which is why i love um power rangers and the history of power rangers like and the different valuations that it's been acquired and and sold off over the years because it kind of captures like the difficulty of, of um content ip so i naturally gravitate towards those type of assets couple that with you know governance quirks that serve as signals right like these are hard assets to uh, value in general if if i'm given an edge where you know the management team changes their comp plan or there's some you know um, interesting adjustment in governance that i notice that's a tell for the core business right that's something i should be paying attention to and if you nail it like 
I mean, you've, you've probably been in enough of these network or you know, content IP plays. When, when things are aligned, like the stock moves and it works and it works very well. Um, so partly I look at that space because that's my preferred watering hole. Now, as far as biotech or things outside of tech, the nice benefit of writing and, and having just kind of having your thoughts out there in public is you start getting inbounds. Yep. And um, there are some incredibly talented, smart, like brilliant people that follow certain industries and spaces that have never really entertained governance. And, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative that they think of me when, when they see a weird change. Cause usually I'm probably one of the first emails they send out go like, Hey, what's, what do you think about this? And then I'll, I'll give my high level like general thoughts. And then they kind of fill it, you know, they actually fill in the investor perspective for me yep. and they'll say, Oh, that makes a lot of sense because of X, Y, um, and, and Z. And then I'm like, Oh really? Like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is definitely the case. <laughs> you should, uh, yeah, there's something here. I mean, that's where, you know, Vaxart was, was an inbound from someone very thoughtful that, that covered the industry very closely and they had questions. And by the time we kind of framed it out, I was like, yeah, there's something here. There's uh, like, I, I know we haven't really talked about Vaxart, but like type of compensation structure that they were implementing was so unusual. And I've seen hundreds of these you know, plans. I was like, there, there are only a handful of conclusions uh, you can make. And in the case of Vaxars, like most of them lead towards the stock going, you know, up and to the right. Yep. How, how, you know, value, you know, the move's going to be, but um, you definitely have good enough signal to, you know, throw, throw a few you know, shekels at it. Yeah. No, just for people who don't know, I'll just quickly summarize Vaxart. So Vaxart, um, they, in, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, they changed their CEO to an investment banking CEO. They hit him with a ton of options that were just way, way out of the money. You know, the stock was at like two or something at the time. They hit him with some five, seven, fifty, ten dollars $10 stock options. Uh, and maybe a week after the change in the new options came out, they said they announced that they had been selected for Operation Warp Speed. Uh, so, you know, they, they had a COVID vaccine in the thing. And the stock has gone absolutely ballistic. So, um, and, and you wrote that up and pointed it out. And actually, that kind of segues to a, a question I wanted to ask: Kodak and Vaxart. You know, with uh, with Vaxart, mm -hmm. uh, Bernie Sanders came out and said Vaxart should be investigated. Uh, there was a New York Times profile, uh, a New York Times piece on Vaxart, which uh, I'm not going to say was a carbon copy of your your write up, but it, it was pretty close. And with Kodak, Elizabeth Warren came out and um, and kind of said, hey, Kodak needs to be investigated for this. So when when you see these, like, how do you feel about that? Is, is it proud? I mean, I obviously, I think you kind of should have got a shot at there. Do you, do you mind being shouted out in these? How do you think about that? I mean, I, I don't know what to think about it. I, I, I will say uh, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, uh, but I, I will I will note, like, you know, when it came to Baxter and, and these other pieces, like, I try to emphasize, like, the answer is not, you know, straightforward, right? It's, um, there, there's a lot of gray area. Like in the case of Vaxart, I mean, listen, if, if, if they actually come up with a vaccine for COVID and, and it's a pill form, you don't have to get a shot. They're going to be one of the winners. And, mm. you know, an argument should be made that, that, you know, they, they should be uh, rewarded uh, for that. Uh, how, like, maybe they should have done a better way, but like, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Vaxart 
probably isn't the most egregious you know, situation I've come across over the years when it comes to stuff like that. But as far as like attention, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that we're having a conversation about this stuff. This was one of my goals about, you know, writing governance and evangelizing governance. It's like, it's one thing to try to teach people best practices. No one's going to pay attention, but if you teach bad practices uh, and, and show like how people make a lot of money and how you can make a lot of money, you're yeah. going to implicitly learn good practices because you'll go, oh, spring loading is bad because the best practice is to release the material information and then grant shares. Like you, you learn, it's, it's a different way of learning. And it's, it's also kind of, you know, a way of highlighting, hey, you start these conversations, um, like people, people will take notice if, if you have, you know, something important to say and, and you can actually drive, uh, you drive the conversation and, and drive, um, uh, positive change. Now that said, you know, I've had my frustrations with, with, uh, you know, how, you know, some folks, you know, interpret what I have to say, but, you know, more importantly, I get frustrated because, you know, just email me guys. Like I, I can actually tell you exactly how to, how to investigate these things because if, if you're taking, so Vaxart, I actually bro broke up into two, like, thank you for your, for your, uh, patronage and your subscription. Yep. All the good stuff is behind a paywall. Yep. And, and I would actually say, if, if you know what you're doing, it's the obvious stuff too. Um, so for someone to take inspiration on, on something and, and write about it, which is fine, but you butcher a very important story. You butcher a very important conversation. And, and that's like, I, I always joke about the whole Picasso, like, you know, like good artist copy, great artist steal. Like my view is like, do not copy me. If you're going to do it, steal from me. Yeah. Because at least steal. I can be like, that is dope, right? This is really cool. They took something that I wrote about and they made it their own and like actually uh, forwarded the conversation. And, and I can now steal from their work and, and build on top of, of what they've done. Like that's, that's what I want you to do. Like do that, but don't just like carbon copy something. And um, you know, it's water on the bridge. Like it, it is what it is, but it's like, like don't butcher it <laughs> guys. Like there's, there, there, it was an important opportunity to have a good conversation. And if you, if you politicize in a way that doesn't really, really get to the crux of the issues, it just, I mean, it looks haphazard and, and your argument like weakens yep. um, and it could actually set you back. So um, I guess that said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that I've gotten the attention, but you know, I, I think there's still a lot to do. There's still a lot to you know chip away and, and grind. And I think the big lesson hopefully is like, the next time I write about something like, um, you know, someone will actually reach out and want to talk to me about it um, versus just trying to, you know, take inspiration from it. So. Uh, well, I've got some questions for listeners that questions from listeners I want to wrap up with, but is there any situation like you wanted to cover any company you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit here? I'm happy, you, the floor is yours. If there's anything you wanted to discuss real quick. No, uh, I mean, fire away. I right, answer your question. Uh, most popular question, and I've asked you this several times, so I think I know the answer. But uh, yeah, I, I think everyone who follows your work or subscribes is impressed with how how much you read into these uh, proxies and stuff. Yeah, what's your screening process? How are you finding these things? Uh, well, uh, you know, because it's a newsletter, I don't proactively screen for this stuff. I mean, the newsletter is kind of an offshoot of just me, like. Uh, I follow, I'll like pull strings and follow curiosities. So this kind of goes back to the investor perspective. If I, if I look at like, 
if I come across a situation, say on Twitter, or I see like a ticker where it's like, oh, that stock blew up. It's near, it's near the, its fiscal year end. Like I'm curious how they're going to, uh, I don't know, adjust compensation or their governance given, you know, what's going on here. So I, I usually kind of um, go to like, I've gotten very lucky finding these situations, right? Like I'm not actively screening for it. I'm not actively um, uh, uh, trying to find them. It's more of like, this is a, I often ask myself when, when I find these things, how I end up there is I ask myself, this is an interesting situation. You know, X, Y, and Z blew up. Here are the challenges. I'm curious how the board's going to proceed. And then I start digging in and, and more often than not, you kind of identify very quickly what they're doing. Um, I'm sure I'll get arbed out at some point, the more I talk about this stuff. And I really probably should proactively screen it since, you know, I kind of do it for the newsletter. I mean, if I were doing this as a fund, like I would actually invest time, capital resources to do it correctly. But uh, this is more uh, kind of a passion project hobby. I mean, I'm sure you've seen me on Twitter on a random Friday night at 11 PM reading a proxy and going, what is wrong with me? I'm reading a proxy at 11 PM, but um, I guess the answer is I I just kind of, you know, I I enjoy it and I I find it by happenstance because I I know what I'm looking for, but um, it's not something I I actively look for. You, uh, you get a proxy at 11 PM on a Friday. What's the first section you're going to flip through if you think there's been some shenanigans going on in the company? I mean, I will always look at long-term equity uh, incentive um, discussions. Um, how do they frame it? What are the hurdles? Uh, what um, kind of what's been their historical philosophy? And then I'll check kind of historical grants, see if they're you know consistent. Um, you know, the key here is, is there a process in place? If there's a process in place, then there's not as much room for the dark arts. Or if there's a process in place and they make a, a an adjustment, you know, at the 11th hour for the most recent grants, that's more telling to me because that means they purposely diverged from the process. Um, so usually the first thing I'll look at is, you know, their equity incentive um, program. I'll look at their bonus uh, hurdles, you know, for the annual year, compare that to maybe guidance if they provide that, see if there's a mismatch. Um, and if there's any sort of disclosure or dialogue on like go forward grants or how they're going to grant, you know, next year's grants, I'll look at that. Um, but for, I mean, from there, you can build a pretty good narrative as far as what's potentially going on there and what the company prioritizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked a lot about long-term equity grants. A lot of people ask, um, changing KPIs, is that too soft of a signal or do you see something in there? And I'll, I'll just give an example real quick. You know, a company that has traditionally had rewarded their executive team on book value growth or something, switching to a return on equity target or an earnings per share growth target or something. Do you? Do you read anything into that or is that just a little too soft? I, I always pay attention to changes in, in compensation and hurdles. Um, even if the composition is the same, so let's say you're sticking to options, but the hurdles change. Um, I mean, I, I always take note. And, and the reason I do that is those things, those things are thought through, right? Those are, you know, because they, they are going to influence and impact behaviors and, and cascade down the organization and drive um, behavior. So it's very important to uh, understand, you know, or try your best to understand the why behind changes and hurdles. Mm-hmm. I would say in general, I mean, there's not strong signal um, in the sense that when you see changes, often it's at the request of a shareholder or 
it's realigning to industry best practices. Um, it's not, it, it's not necessarily a, a big, you know, a flag or smoking gun necessarily, yeah. but if it's something out of the blue after, so the best time to actually look at those changes is if a stock's blown up, right? How are you going to incentivize the management team to execute on whatever plan? And it's likely a turnaround plan going forward and keep them engaged and motivated. What are the right hurdles for that? So when you take, when you approach it from that investor perspective and, and just kind of common sense perspective, it kind of bubbles and, and puts light on, on those hurdles. And, um, and that's when you go, okay, year to year, just kind of process related hurdle changes don't interest me. But if the stocks move 40% and they suddenly move their hurdles to, you know, option or they move their grants to options and the hurdles are now, you know, um, tied to, you know, returns or, or something else, yep. I'm going to pay attention. Yep. And, and everyone should pay attention. That's like, that's like just equity research 101. Makes total sense to me. Completely agree. Uh, the, the question was originally, what was the biggest mistake in your life? But I, I think that might be a little too deep for this podcast. So uh, maybe like what's one dark, dark arts framework <laughs> investment that you, you picked up on and you kind of regret or either passing or investing into it? So I, I think if you get to know me long enough, I, I don't really think in terms of mistakes. I think in terms of trade-offs and I think everyone, I mean, you have to be happy. Well, you don't have to be happy, but you have to be comfortable with the trade-offs you're willing to make, right? Mm -hmm. Like these aren't mistakes. These are like you on, as long as you understand that if I do this, then like, you know, these opportunities are probably going to, you know, uh, uh, shut or, or they won't be, you know, um, you know, a good opportunity for you. uh, Like that's fine. And I would say probably the biggest trade-off personally I've made is I just like, I've, I've come to the realization that I'll never get hired through the, through the front door of any company ever. Like I'm, I'm never going to be able to submit a resume. And this is like absolutely true. So like when, when I graduated, you know, college, I, I ended up doing you know, nonprofit and all that, but I, I, I interviewed at all the other places. Um, banking and, and all that, like my batting average for sell side is like zero. I, I cannot get a job. Like I can't walk through the front door of any, any of these places and get a job. What's quirky and why I love buy side because it's full of you know interesting people who are very, uh, a lot of them are eccentric. Um, they will give you a shot. They will, you know, they're willing to take a risk or they're willing to, you know, bubble up, you know, the potential in, in candidates. And, and that's been my saving grace <laughs> I think like as a career, like someone in Biocide saw something in me and was willing to give me a shot. So um, from this point, you know, from that point on, you know, I, I just, and, and people talk about social proof and like, you know, networking into jobs and it's a well-understood concept. Like I, like every job I've ever gotten is probably been through the side door. Cause you know, I talked to someone, had a good conversation. So um like if, if I were to submit my resume right now to like most hedge funds, like realistically, um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get through the headhunter screen. I'm I'm just not. Like this is this is a fact. Trust me, this is a fact. I'm not gonna get through the headhunter screen. Um, but if 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 a fund was reading my stuff and I tweeted like, you know what, like this, the newsletter is great, but I feel like going back to buy side. At the very least, I think I can get some interviews. Right. I think, I think someone might be interested 
and, and will talk to me. I have a feeling right? the work on non-GAAP, if you put that out, you would be a very hot commodity. So I was just laughing because I think it's funny, like the headhunters would reject you and anyone who subscribes to your stuff would be like, oh my God, <laughs> we got to get this guy in for an interview at a minimum. Yeah. So like, that's why I don't like talking about mistakes because it's like, I talk about mistakes and then I'm trying to tell you like, avoid this. Yep. And it's more, no, like be comfortable with the trade-offs you're, you're willing to do, right? Like I, you know, I have no problem like, like quitting a job and just not having a fallback. You talk to some folks that terrifies, like, like there, there's nothing scarier than quitting a job and not having you know something mm-hmm. in place. And it's like, that was a trade-off I was willing to make. Like I, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in kind of the hamster wheel of, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. I like, I was fine being patient and waiting and, and, and betting on myself to a certain extent. So, um, I guess that, that would be my roundabout meandering way of saying like, I, I don't necessarily think of mistakes, but I definitely think of trade-offs as far as misses investment misses. And I think this is um, a theme for a lot of longtime investors is, you know, I keep on forgetting the whole like never sell notion, right? Because a stock run, like, listen, I, my biggest, I mean, the, my biggest miss is probably like selling Etsy. Um, and my cost base was like six bucks a share. Mm-hmm. It was like, I think it was, a, I mean, it was like a nine bagger for me, uh, but like, I should have just held on, right? Like it, it fit my wheelhouse. It fit the story. Like Etsy is actually a really good case as far as like using, using governance as signals to us. Uh, you know, like speaking of like pseudo tire fires and, and using governance as signals, Etsy back in 2015, 2016, excellent case study. I, I should probably write about that at some point, but um, I think that's okay. That I will say are misses when, when you get into this whole, like never sell like philosophy, you're really trying to adopt it and, and you still can't help yourself and, and, and you do it anyway. And, and you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing it, but you still do it. I never sell. It's so interesting because like the past, I'd say five, six, seven years have taught you never sell. And people particularly use it for the compounding tech fang type stocks, right? Where, mm-hmm. hey, these things have scale, they have network effects, and because there's no limits to the internet, they can grow beyond the world. But you know, if you rewinded it 10 years back and you took the concept of never sell, it actually probably w- would have worked out. It would not not have worked out well for you, right? Like outside of Berkshire, just about every other large company that never sell has been applied to has pretty much blown up, I would say, uh, yeah. you know, if you're ignoring the past 10 years. So I do wonder if that's like, part of the environment today or if that is actually like you should kind of never sell when you've got one of these big winners i would say personally the answer is and this kind of like uh you know call back to earlier part of the podcast um you know networked assets network effect businesses are some of the hardest things to value and people tend to undervalue them because they tend to lean into the business model side of trying to value right like you have Etsy or, or some of these businesses, fantastic like network effects, but really what are you, what are you like valuing? You're valuing their business model, but you're not really, it's hard to business. Uh, it's hard to value like the true assets, which are the users and, and, and the merchants and, and the independent sellers. And um, I think never sell for me, just given my preference to look at more kind of networked um, assets and businesses is more of a reminder of like, Hey, the reason you fish in this pond in the first place is because people misunderstand and, and misvalue these sort of situations 
Like you're going to do the same thing too, to a certain extent. And, and when you, when you nail the story, even if you think that it's, um, you know, uh, well-valued or you want to trim it, 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 that compounding moat, and I don't like using the word moat, but that like, that that competitive advantage that differentiation continues to compound underneath like whatever business model you're valuing off of and, and you're probably underappreciating it you're probably you're probably falling into the um same pitfalls that most investors were doing when you got into the name it's just now it's at a much higher valuation so i mean that's kind of like i agree like never selling can be a bad thing too um for certain situations but for the kind of things i like to look at like I mean, it, it's been more of a, you know, a mistake. And I don't like giving a mistake. I, I guess, you know, it, it, I've definitely, I've definitely probably left a lot more money on the table selling versus just like, hang on. And I guess just like with Etsy, or I think back to the content things we were talking about earlier, right? Like often you sell because you look and you say, Hey, this is a video game company. And, you know, I think the company has fully priced in all the profits they'll get from video. But if it's a great company with a great network or great IP, it's like, well, the video game can evolve into a Netflix TV show, or they can build a theme park around it. Or there's lots of options with these great assets. You often sell because of trailing financials, but that ignores all the, Elliot and I on our podcast yesterday talked about, you get all these different level up opportunities with great assets. Uh, last question, and then I'm gonna let you go. Um, you know, you've been in a boardroom, you've been inside the boardroom, you write about the corporate dark arts, and I thought this is an interesting question. What do you think about normies, not kind of corporate executives joined the board? And I, I guess that an example that comes to mind for me is Ryan Reynolds joined Matches Board at the beginning of July after they spun off of YAC. I, I know a bunch of people who kind of dumped on why is Ryan Reynolds on the match.com, this you know, $15, 20000000000 billion growth tech company, YAC there. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think I think it's great in the sense that, and, and you know, Ralph Whitworth is a big advocate of this, like, I believe most boards, when it comes to like identifying directors, where they kind of like fall short is they take a checklist approach, right? They always think, who do we need to add? Like, and, 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 it, and it's usually like very crude, right? It's like, oh, we, need, we need another woman. We need another X or Y. Or, you know, it, it kind of like takes away what you're trying to do from a governance and board perspective. Like, you need to take a more holistic approach. What are, what are the next four directors we need over time? Not, not just the next one. Like, don't say, you know, this person left, so we need to find a replacement that meets that exact, you know, specification. That just, that's a limiting approach. And I actually believe that you need to broaden the top of the funnel. And you actually have to be more open to interviewing and considering people from um, all sorts of backgrounds, whether it's, you know, you know, a celebrity, which maybe, you know, brings a differentiated view as far as, you know, advocacy or, you know, like uh, an investor that maybe isn't a CEO or hasn't had like, uh, you know, experience on the board, but, um, you know, would probably do a good job. Like, I mean, like I joke, but I'm probably the most qualified, unqualified director candidate you could probably interview, right? Like everything on paper says I probably shouldn't be on your board, but I would probably be one of your better directors. Um, and, and, and I think that's like on a risk adjusted basis. But, you know, most boards are looking for ex-CEOs or current CEOs or like very high bars that actually, this, go, this, this actually goes to the heart of the diversity debates um, and, and trying to bring uh, more diverse voices and perspectives. Like if, if, if your hurdle is, you know, 
a public company CEO and you're trying to you know, bring in a divorce, a diverse board or a, a diverse perspective to the board, there are not many candidates that you can actually narrow down. It's probably the same, you know, handful of people. But if, if you're looking more on a forward looking basis, like who, who do we think can add value and, um, you know, help bring a different perspective or we can you know, train them or bring them along on certain things, like just the, the basics, but they bring like an outstanding differentiated view and, and something else we should consider them. And, and I think that's been kind of, you know, Ralph's advocacy for you know 20 plus years is like, that's one of the first things he does. Like, don't, don't just like, you know, carte blanche, just consider CEOs, like be willing to be open and, uh, uh, consider folks that maybe otherwise wouldn't even like, you know, make the first screen or wouldn't even be on the short list. Like it's, it's easy to be, um, you know, have a knee jerk judgmental reaction to certain, you know, additions. Um, but you know, like there's something we said of giving people the benefit of the doubt and actually seeing like, can we, uh, you know, drive, um, you know, meaningful value and can they offer a value add perspective? And I say if more companies and more boards could actually broaden the top of the funnel, I think performance and governance and, and a lot of things that you know, people are you know, uh, concerned about, um, a lot of that stuff will get addressed and, and long-term value will be you know, uh, produced. But I mean, that's, that's more of a, you know, in my, you know, in my heart of hearts, you know, gut, like, like my yep. North star, that's what I think is possible. Look, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, my, my puppy is starting to whine over there. So <laughs> you've been so generous with your time. You have a standing invite. Actually, I think your, your background and everything is history. I think everything you've talked about uh, with Ralph and with the Intuit board uh, is so interesting. We're going to have to have you back on so we can go into that a little more deeply at some point. Uh, last thing, is there any person you'd like to hear interviewed on this podcast or any stock you'd kind of be interested in learning more about? Sure. They're, they're probably a, a handful that I'll, I'll let you know offline. Cause I don't know if they want to like, be publicly mentioned. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause they're, they, you know, they're, they're private accounts. Uh, but um, I, you know, like listen, my favorite, so everyone, when they follow activism, like they kind of follow the headliners, right. Elliot and things like that. I, you should really, I, I don't, I don't know if you can talk to you about elf cause they settled, but like Mario Sabelli, I have some really interesting perspectives. It's fun. I, I DM'd him today and I think he's coming on next week. So I, I'm oh, perfect. So no, you, uh, you're front running me. I know I'm front running. Well, they, he was like probably aside from core logic and you know, the craziness that Bill Foley is doing right now, elf with marathon and TPG and just the technical fight that they had as like for him to drive some of the things that he did at elf when he basically had, you know, a 40 plus percent vote against him. Yep. It's unbelievable. So like, that's, you know, I, I think that's kind of a, you know, like, you know, an activist, activist campaign, right? Like you, do, you, you do this long enough. You're like, this, that's spectacular. I saw you writing about this and he, he was doing it. And I, I was looking, I was like, it, TPG, as you said, they own 40% of, they own 40% of the company. There's, there's no way that they can get anything done here. And uh, I, I haven't followed this story too closely but as you said he got something done and that that's just herculean it's incredible it's herculean and it's you know it's um yeah it's it's, it's contrary to what people assume right like most people wouldn't even bother trying to take that on so it's you know it's um it's definitely interesting and that's why you know, i love kind of the more technical activist fights personally but um yeah definitely i think a good resource and and i'll, I'll i'm happy to dm you a few others Absolutely. that i think would be phenomenal hey well this was mike for non-gap again everybody 
it is worth the subscription. You should absolutely do it. Thank you for coming on. We're going to have to have you again at some point and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good.